Well, welcome to our 15th episode of Spurbs Herbs. Today is a world herb. We are going to be talking about hops, humulus, iupulus. And so this is a, I, you know, I say at the very end, I think this is probably the most commonly herb ingested in the world. I can't imagine any other herb being as frequently ingested as this. This is my own assessment. Um, I, you know, I'm open to correction if anyone has any any thoughts. Uh, but just an amazing herb. Uh, and, well, we're going to see what it does, and it's going to be very interesting. So let's get into it. Episode 15, Hops, Humulus, Iupulus. I kind of enjoy saying that. All right. Well, as usual, if you are an acupuncturist, this podcast, as well as others, are approved for California Acupuncture Board, Continuing Education Units, and National Certification Commission of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine PDAs or Professional Development Activities at a reasonable cost. Please check out www. Integrative Medicine Council, that's C-O-U-N-C-I-L dot org for more information on how you can get CEUs. All right, well, let's get into it. So this is interesting. So, uh, okay, you know, all of my, my podcasts have something a little different. That's the idea about it is to kind of explore something a little different. And I do like to be different. I don't like to be obvious, but come on, if I'm... I have to talk about beer if I'm going to talk about hops. Uh, it is, you know, a huge ingredient in beer. And we're going to see what it does, why, all that stuff. If you're not familiar with it, hops is a crucial component to beer. can be a distinguishing factor between different types of beer. And we're going to talk about different types of hops, how they are used in beer making, and their role in certain types of beer. So we're going to get into all of that. I'm really interested in this topic, not because I'm a big beer drinker but because i'm not a big beer drinker and i know very little about the different types so this is going to be this has been interesting for me to develop this and and uh, learn about beer and hops role in beer so without further ado let's get going so we're going to start by taking a step back the first beers did not use hops all right so hops came later in the development of brewing Instead, they used something called gruit. I had never heard of gruit before I started studying this, so I'm, I was fascinated by it. So gruit was a combination of herbs designed to flavor and bitter beers. So we're going to find out why you want a little bit of bitterness in a beer. We're going to find that out in just a bit. But so gruit was originally that thing, and and many different types were used for this, with each producer having their own combination. It was a combination of herbs, and it was unique. So commonly used herbs included sweet gale or marica um, gale, mugwort, Artemisia vulgaris. This is a Chinese herb. We, In fact, we did a spurbs herbs on it. Aya. So that's interesting. Yarrow, uh, Achillea millifolium, ground ivy, glaucoma herderaceae. So again, uh, as I usually do, I warned that I am... Uh, my my Chinese is poor, and I think my Latin is even worse. So please excuse my pronunciations of some of these Latin names. Whorehound, uh, which uh, is actually a very commonly common herb, and it's used in candies. My, my wife likes whorehound candies. Uh, Merubium vulgari and Coluna heather, Coluna vulgaris. So these are all commonly used herbs in gruit. 
Other possible additions include juniper berries, which are, are quite tasty. I actually use those when I brine a turkey for Thanksgiving. Ginger, which of course is uh, is a uh, another good Chinese herb. Caraway seed, aniseed, nutmeg, cinnamon, mint, and occasionally hops were additional to the gruet. So there were other herbs and then some hops would be thrown in. So that's, you know, a lot of very, these, these possible additions actually sound really tasty uh, to, to various uh, uh, beers uh, as they're being brewed. So hops became popular and supplanted the use of gruet. However, it, it kind of went and starts in, and it starts in fits. It didn't happen all at once. Historically, hops would be taxed and then brewers would start using untaxed gruet. And I think it originally kind of started because gruet was heavily taxed. And so the hops was the way to get around the tax for brewers. So that's why that was one of the main reasons why hops uh, became so popular in beer. So I think it's interesting that uh, these sort of unintended consequences from from uh, leaders and and at that time it would have been kings and and uh, those sort of uh, types of leaders autocratic leaders and uh, it it, it kind of diverted how beer was made but there are advantages to hops and, and these include they were less expensive than the gruet and they kept and part of that may have been the taxing and it kept the be beer better preserved so that's a, a good thing as well we're gonna find out there's a couple other uh bonuses for hops but those are big ones there and and i was kind of curious and yes there are many gruet beers currently made by microbreweries so you can buy a beer that doesn't have hops in it and is just made from gruet uh, which sounds kind of interesting to me, but they're microbreweries, so they're not incredibly well-known. Um, I personally, I think I would like to explore Gruet beers a little bit. I'm kind of fascinated with these use of these other herbs. So now that we've established why hops became popular, and, and really it was economic as well as some of these, these uh, helpful benefits to actual beer, what does it actually do to beer? And we mentioned it helps preserve beer. And of course, the other big thing it does is flavor it. And we're going to talk about sort of the process of beer and why the flavoring might be useful in just a minute. While we know there's one main species of hops, there are many, many cultivars of this species that can vary greatly. We've talked about cultivars before uh, on Spurbs Herbs, but just as a reminder, a cultivar is sort of a subspecies. So the species, as we, we talked about, is uh, human, uh, um, humulus, iupulus, and then there's going to be subspecies or cultivars of that. So the different just different uh, types of that. And so, and they can vary very greatly. So there's a lot of big variety of different hops out there, even though they're all a singular species. And generally hops are, are dried before use in an oast house. That's, that's the German name. There's a lot of German and, and Danish and uh, names when you start talking about brewing and, and all that. And uh, so oost house is, house is one of those, I think it's German. And so hops are put in there and they're dried. Undried or wet hops are sometimes used in beer as well. So uh, it is, and we're going to see uh, some of the differences there, uh, why they might use that. So we're going to talk more about the constituents of hops later, but we need to mention three different constituents right now. So the first one of these is alpha acids or humulones, which are changed into isohumulones with boiling. And these are responsible for the bitter taste of beer. So hops adds a bitter taste to beer. 
There are also beta acids or lupulones, uh, and these aid the aroma of beer, so the smell of beer. And there are also essential oils, including myrcene, humulene, and caryophylline, also aid the smell and aroma of beer. So essential oils are, are interesting. Uh, you may know if you're if you're an herbalist that essential oils are volatile oils. That's another exact name. You know, that's a synonym for essential oils or volatile oils. And they're called volatile because they're very easy for them to to off gas, especially if you are uh, boiling or applying heat. So like when we do herbs that are have a lot of essential oils, like mint is a, is a great herb. We always add it at the very end. In fact, with mint, we generally will turn off the heat and then add the uh, mint at the very, very end of decocting a formula. And that's because we want to kind of keep it. We want to open it up, but we want to keep those essential oils in the thing. So um, with beer, same thing. If you're adding the hops in, during the boiling process, there aren't going to be these essential oils. So these are only if hops are added towards the end. And that might be one of those reasons why you'd use a wet hops as opposed to dry hops, because the wet hops are probably going to have a little bit more essential oils. You add those in the end, they're going to have a lot more, uh, add a lot more to the beer. So there we go. Those are the three constituents of beer from hops. So different cultivars will have different concentrations of these alpha and beta acids. So they, they have these different combinations between the bitterness and the, the aroma aspects and flavoring, a little bit of flavoring with those, those beta acids. Bittering hops have a higher concentration of alpha, alpha acids and average anywhere from 5 to 19% of alpha acids by weight. Uh, that's what AABW means, alpha acids by weight. So 19% of the hops can actually be alpha acids. That's a huge number in there. And so those are the bittering aspects of hops. Aroma hops have approximately 5% of alpha acids by weight and aid in the aroma and non-bitter flavors. So that, that will give a more flavorful beer, not as bitter, and uh, have more aroma to the beer as well. There are dual-use hops, which can contribute to both aspects. In fact, those are, in, in modern-day brewing, are probably the most popular types of hops used in, in beer making. Brewing, in other words. Noble hops is a marketing term that traditionally refers to European cultivars of hops, low in bitterness and high in aroma. So we're going to see that some types of beer rely on these noble hops. But it is, noble hops is interesting. This is sort of a... Um, I'm going to say trademarked term. Uh, it's like you can't uh, you can't call a sparkling wine made in the U.S. You can't say it, it's you can't call it champagne because champagne is only grown in the Champagne area of France. Any other sparkling wines cannot be called champagne. It's the same thing with noble hops. Noble hops are only grown in Europe, so no any no other place where you grow hops can be called noble hops, even if they're the same cultivar and have very similar uh, uh, aspects to it. So noble hops will only be really used or should only be used on European type beers. So there's that. In a nutshell, beer is made in the following steps. So this is a big nutshell. There's a lot of different steps and a lot of different aspects of each of those steps. But generally, this is a step-by-step -step process. So first you start with dried sprouted cereal grains, normally barley. And um, you get the malt from that. Uh, this is, you know, you crack it in a mill and that forms grist, grist, excuse me, grist. So malt is from the dried sprouted cereal grains, normally barley, but we're going to see you can also use other things like uh, wheat beers are very popular. 
So crack it in a mill and then you have grist and then you make mash by mixing it with hot water and steeping it. So mash is sort of the beginning of the brewing brewing process. This uh, steeping uh, allows the sugar to be created enzymatically from the starches in the malt. So these malts uh, from those grains have a lot of starches and starches are difficult to, to actually ferment. So you want them broken down into sugars. And so this malting, uh, this mash, uh, with the hot water and steeping it allows enzymes in the grains to actually start to break down those starches into sugars. And then you wash the mash or sparget. It's called sparging. Uh, you water or separate the spent grain from the wort, which is water mixed with the fermentable sugars. There's a lot of new words in there, aren't there? Okay, so... Um, so you have this, this mash which is a combination of hot water and the, and the, uh, the malt from the, the grains. And you're going to wash this mash. So you sparg it. That's what you're doing is um, you're washing it off. You're trying to get all the sugars off of the, the, the malts so that there's more sugars in the fluid that's left over. And then once you have this fluid that's left over, you lauder it or you separate it. You take out all the, the big substances, all the grain from, from this mixture of mash, and what's left is the wort. Um, that's wort, W-O-R-T, not W-A-R-T, W-O-R-T, wort, which is water mixed with the fermentable sugar. So this wort is, is really heavy in sugars. Uh, it's basically sugar water is basically what that is. And then it, that is boiled. And what that boiling does is it, it takes off some of the water and it concentrates the sugar. So now you have this boiled wort, wort that is very high in sugar content. And this is where hops may be introduced. It's added into this boiling period. So as you are boiling the wort to concentrate the sugars, you can put hops in that, you know, different, uh, Sources said different things, but they usually say this process of boiling wort is about an hour or two. And so depending on when you put the hops in depends on sort of the flavoring at the end. A longer boil of hops causes more bitterness in the beer, while a shorter boil will decrease the hop flavor and add more aroma because the essential oils are not boiled off. Sometimes they'll, they'll do both. They'll add some at the beginning, they'll add some at the end, so that you kind of get both aspects of this. Uh, we didn't talk about this, but that we talked about the alpha acids, humulone, and then it changes into isohumulone with boiling. It's isohumulone that is the most bittering of the flavors. So the longer the boil, the more isohumulone there is, and the more bitter the, the resulting beer is going to be. And then after this has been boiled for a while, it's cooled. Brewer's yeast is added to the hopped wort and fermented. So fermenting just means it is put aside and uh, the brewer's yeast does its, its work. More hops may be added at this point through what's known as a hop back to add more aromatic hop flavoring. So um, my understanding when I read about a hop back is it's sort of like a lattice formation. Like you put a bunch of hop on the bottom of a, of a vat and you pour the wort through that and then um, it so it and it's strained at the same time but it gets all the hop more hop flavoring going through so and that'll add that aromatic because you're not boiling it at all it's not going to have a lot of bitterness to it and then finally then it's put away it's stored for fermenting and fermenting can take one week to several months and ethanol is produced and beer is made so there you go that is in a nutshell the whole process of making beer and uh, the hops uh, portion of, of that, how that affects that. 
So as we discussed, malt and wort are very sweet due to the sugars present. Hops adds a bitterness that balances this sweetness. That's sort of the, the role of hops is that bitterness. The bitterness is measured using the international bitterness units scale. What this allows you to do is if you, because we, different conditions, different environmental conditions, you know, you have a wet winter versus a, a hot winter or whatever it is, that will change some of the contents of the hops. And so by using this scale, the international bitterness units scale, then you can actually kind of uh, control for those sort of things. So you can have a consistent beer by, by judging how bitter it is. They also contribute floral, citrus, and herbal aromas and flavors. And this is another, um, what I'm about to say is another aspect, another reason why hops is useful. It helps to stabilize the foamy head. So that is, a, is another useful, there's, there's components in it that kind of stabilize that foam. So very interesting in that regard. So there are lots of local varieties of beers throughout the world. Traditionally, ale referred to an unhopped fermented drink, while beer describes a brew with an infusion of hops, though this is generally not true today. There are plenty of ales that have hops in them. Pale ale is a beer which uses top fermenting yeast and predominantly pale malt. So we didn't talk about top or bottom fermenting yeast, but this is different types of brewer's yeast, some uh, ferment on the top. Top fermenting yeast produces significant amounts of esters and other secondary flavor and aroma products and result in a beer with slightly fruity compounds. So if you want your beer a little bit lighter, uh, top fermenting is a good idea. Stouts and porters are dark beers made using, ro made using roasted malts or roast barley and typically brewed with slow fermenting yeast, so it takes longer. Mild ale has a predominantly malty palate and is usually dark colored so malty of course means um, grainy and sugary you know sort of thing wheat beer is brewed with a large proportion of wheat although it often contains a significant portion proportion of malted barley so malted barley is kind of the the uh, standard here and then in the wheat beers we add in quite a bit of wheat and they're also top fermented so they tend to be a little bit more on the fruity side a little bit lighter beer Lager is a cool fermented beer. Pale lagers are the most commonly consumed beers in the world. Many pale lagers have fairly low hop content, so it doesn't have as much bitterness. Many are of the Pilsner type. These generally have a noble hop aroma. So you have those noble hops. There's more of an aroma from it. Those are the Pilsners. The name lager comes from the German lagern or for to store. So it's, uh, it means storage, basically. All these have some really interesting backgrounds. If you get into porters and stouts and where they came from, it's, there's some interesting history and all those that we can't get into here. Lager yeast is a cool bottom fermenting yeast. So it's, it stays in the bottom and produces sort of a um, uh, less fruity sort of beer. Certain ales, especially India Pale Ale or IPA, IPAs can have high levels of hop bitterness. So they have a lot of hop in them. So um, it's interesting. I have a friend who likes beer and uh, comes over and I ask him what he wants. He says, anything but I don't want an India pale ale. That's the, I don't like IPAs. That's the one thing. So he doesn't like the bitterness basically. So there you go. That's how beard's made. Beer's made a brief overview of beer and the role of hops. So with that, let's get into hops, the herb proper. Let's talk about the herb hops, what it does, why it could be useful for us from health concerns and all that. So hops 
comes from the family of Cannabassier, which is a very interesting family. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Its medicinal part is the female flower or seed cones, uh, strabilis. So, um, so what are strabilis? Strabilis are another term for the seed cones. So it's it's an interesting sort of thing. It is the female flower, but it's conical. It actually has sort of overlapping scales like a, like a, a cone does. Uh, but it is the flower, and it's the female flower. It's not the male flower. The male flower is necessary for, for uh, growing it, but it is the female flower that we're actually using as hops, as the, as the actual herb. There are lots of other names for hops. These include cedar, bine, burr, uh, in French, houblon grimpant. Again, I'm bad with French, so excuse me. In German, hopfen or zaunhopfen. Uh, I think there's another French, asperg sauvage, uh, uh, Culevrier and Culevrier Septentrional and Lupulin. In Chinese, it's Pijuahua, Pijuahua. And uh, another word, and I think this is French as well, Sasparellier. It's not Sasparilla, Sasper, Salsepariae. All right, S A L S E P A R E I L L E. There you go. Dosage under this, the dosage is varied depending on my source. You know, one source said six to nine grams dosage, which sounds very uh, Chinese. That's usually how we break things down. And, and that is from a book that translated Western herbs into Chinese uh, sort of usage. So that makes sense. Uh, the PDR, the, the uh, uh, professional desk reference for herbs, said 0.5 to 2 grams is a, is a dose. Um, but I don't know if that was a daily dose or just a dose, and then you could take it a couple times a day. So, so let's talk about that Cannabassier family for just a moment. This is a small family of flowering plants. There aren't a lot of genera in this. Um, so remember, uh, you have when you talk about uh, when we talk about humulus, iupulus. Humulus is the genera, and iupulus is the species. Uh, so that's the what's known as the binomial. Uh, no, uh, um, uh, binomial name. So it includes the genre of cannabis. This is where marijuana is, same family as hops. And then cumulus, of course, is hops. And then celtis or celtis, uh, C-E-L-T-I-S, so it depends on how you pronounce that, are hackberries. So those are some uh, genera. There's, a, there's, I think, 11 genera total. So uh, these are just the most prominent of the genera in this family. Members of the family are erect or climbing plants with petalous flowers. So there's no petals on the flower and dry one seeded fruits. So generally that's what this family is. And really hop and hemp are the only economically important species in this family. So there you go. Hop is it. Okay. So let's talk about what a hop is. So remember I said it's a, it's a uh, female flower but it does not look like any flower it looks like an upside down when it's when it's hanging off of the the vine it's not really a vine it's a vine which is attaches differently than a vine does so i, I learned that that was part of my learning process with hops um so we're looking at these female flowers and they look like when you look at them they look like overlapping scales on them so like little leaves that are overlapping um and looks like sort of a green upside down pine cone to a certain extent you know with the leaves kind of drooping a little bit. 
and so what we have is where that's attached, the, the footstock uh, of that is called the strig. So the strig is what attaches it to the actual bind of hops. And then from there, we have bracts that come off of it. A bract is a modified or specialized leaf, especially one associated with a reproductive structure such as a flower. So that's those are the green sort of, I'm going to say, the cone petals coming off. Those are called bracts. And then uh, within those, you have bracteoles, which are small bracts, especially one on a floral stem. And then within those bracteoles, you have lupulin glands, which contain resins and essential oil. So that's sort of an anatomy of the hops. It's a very different flower than we're used to. You know, we usually think of a flower and it opens up and it has petals and a, and a nice little um, pollen in the in the middle. You know, it's very beautiful. These are not that at all. They're very green. There's no no beautiful colors necessarily from them. There's a little bit of yellow floating around, but that's about it. And it's a very different flowering structure and uh, we're used to. And that flowering structure is also called that strobile, I, you know, that I mentioned earlier, strobile. So it's different than a flower. So first documentation of cultivation was in 736 CE in Germany. So that was when it was first cultivated. It appears to be much older than that, however, and and probably originated in Egypt or Northern Africa. So uh, there are some some... You know, I, I read there, it, it could have been, you know, a good thousand or so years earlier than that in those areas. It's first mentioned in brewing, however, was in 1079 C, so almost 400, 450 years after cultivation began. Now, that doesn't mean it wasn't used in brewing, you know, before 1079. It just says that was the first mentioned, so the first documentation that it was used in brewing. So it was probably used in brewing well before it was documented, but who knows? 450 years is still a long time between those two. So over 110,000 metric tons were grown in 2020. So metric ton remembers 1,000 kilograms, so that's about 2.2 uh, ton. Uh, it's it's uh, 2.2 Pound, a thousand pounds is what it is, two, 2,200 pounds. It's a little bit over a, uh, a ton in the, in the imperial system, about 200 pounds over a, a, a ton in the imperial system. And I was kind of surprised. The most is actually grown in the U.S., but not by much. So in the U.S., we grew 47,451 metric tons. I like that they're so precise on the, on the 451 uh, metric tons. So 47,000, uh, about 47,000 and a half, followed by Germany, which is what I would have expected to be number one, um, given their reputation for beer. And they had 46,878 metric tons. So they were about, uh, you know, a little under 600 uh, metric tons less than the U.S. So pretty even, but close. And then the third was actually China of all all countries and they were down at 7,000 metric tons. So it went from 47,000 to 46,000 to 7,000 metric tons. So by far the most, uh, the most uh, hops was grown in the U S and Germany by far than any other country. 
we have some pictures of the hop vines. So remember I said these are vines, not vines. Vines have little, um, you know, tendrils that go up. Vines do not have those tendrils. So it's a, a slightly different thing. They can grow up to be about thir 30 feet tall. And uh, there's two pictures. One is kind of on the side of a house and you can see it's going up all the way to the roof. It's probably about 30 feet. Uh, and it looks very green. It's actually a decorative uh, bind. It looks really pretty. And then to the right, there's a picture of a buying field where you just see hundreds of these plants all growing up uh, 30 feet. So... Um, fascinating. I've, I've seen videos of these these hop vines and these these hop uh, farms where these grow, and it's it's just they get really tall. So some traditional uses for hops include uh, treating anxiety, restlessness, and insomnia. That's one of the big ones. Um, in fact, it was really fascinating. It was just as I started working on this. Uh, this this uh, actual Spurbs Herbs episode and had just started to look at hops. Uh, one of my patients came in and said, I was recommended to, to take hops for my insomnia. I'm like, well, I haven't gotten into the traditional uses yet. I'm studying it right now, uh, but that sounds interesting. I'm going to keep that in mind as I'm going through this. And yes, that's probably one of the number one uses for hops is for insomnia and to a lesser extent anxiety and restlessness. Uh, Grunwald, who is the who was the editor uh, and et al. and and his group were the editors on the uh, professional desk reference for herbs, says it's also used for gastrointestinal issues, including indigestion, nervous stomach, colitis, irritable bowel syndrome, as an and as an ulcer preventative. So you know. The, this kind of goes back to in Europe, there's definitely the tradition of digestive bitters. So bitter herbs are often aids to digestion. And since this is a bitter herb, it definitely falls into that sort of category. Uh, Swedlow uh, agrees with these uses and adds promotion of menstruation. So we start to see that come into play. We're going to see why that may come into play, that it may actually uh, help with menstruation. And WebMD adds that uh, it can be used to treat attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, as well as symptoms of menopause. And so while I saw some menstrual stuff, I saw more menopausal stuff in the use of hops. So I think menopausal is a little bit more common than um, promotion of, of menstruation. But we're going to see why it can play those roles in just a minute. So uh, preparations. Did I skip anything there? I thought I had another traditional uses. Nope. Preparations. All right. So Holmes states that generally hops can be made into a long infusion up to 30 minutes or a tincture. And he didn't give any ratios to what that tincture would be. He states it can be made into a salve, a compress, a poultice, or wash for skin conditions. So he recommends it for skin conditions. A few others did as well, but it was not one of its most prominent uses. And um, I, we're going to find out why I don't think it's good for skin uh, conditions, but there are definitely some preparations that, that are out there. Uh, Grunwald et al. states a one to five tincture with 60% ethanol. Uh, that's that's a high level of ethanol. Uh, an infusion, and they... They suggest 10 to 15 minutes of steepage or as a tea. And that was my, my patient. Um, the recommendation for my patient was just put a bunch of hops and put boiling water over it and, and drink it. So that would be a tea, basically. Uh, they also discuss a liquid extract and didn't get too much in the, de the details between liquid extract and a tincture I didn't quite get. And then also as a homeopathic preparation. So this can actually be used homeopathically as well. So... 
what is hops according to Chinese medicine? So this is interesting. There were several sources. Usually I, I struggle to get a source for the Chinese medicine uh, conversion of, of a Western herb. But in this case, there were several sources uh, for a Chinese medical approach to hops, and they don't agree very well. Some overlap a little bit, but they're all over the place. So I'm just going to kind of put it out there, and uh, we'll figure it out as we go along. So his Chinese name is Pi Jiu Hua. Now, I didn't get any tone marks. I didn't see any Chinese, but, um, you know, just one possible translation of that. Jiu is usually wine. Hua means flower. And um, Pi can mean skin. So I, I think this is, uh, you know, something along the lines of, uh, you know, wine from skin flower or something along those lines. So it enters the heart and liver according to ChineseNutrition.org. White Rabbit Institute adds the stomach, and Holmes keeps the heart and liver and adds the pericardium and kidney. So three different sources for which meridians this enters as a Chinese medical herb. I think it's pretty clear they all agree on heart and liver. That makes a bit of sense as we're, we get into more of what its functions are. We see that it works a lot with the heart and the liver, so that makes sense. Um, then we have one that adds in stomach. Okay, as a digestive, that could be that could make sense. And uh, Holmes says pericardium and kidney. I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with those. I understand why he said kidney because he's the only one who says it tonifies yin, um, which um, would involve the kidney. I have no clue why pericardium would be in there at all. Um, but there you go. So that's those are the different uh, potential meridians. Uh, ChineseNutrition.org says it is cold and bitter, and they all agree with that. It is a cold and bitter herb, so uh, that makes perfect sense. It has a bitter flavoring and a cooling property. And then White Rabbit and Holmes both add astringent and pungent to that. So astringent means that it, it, it kind of keeps things in. It astringes things. Uh, and uh, so that's, that's an interesting aspect. I don't know if I agree or disagree, I think that's probably in there. Pungent means, and uh, another word for pungent in Chinese medicine would be acrid or spicy. Um, that it usually indicates, you know, usually astringent and spicy are opposites. So I'm a, I'm a little bit curious about that pungent. I don't know if I see a lot of pungent uh, with this, other than um, it does uh, regulate the qi, which we're gonna see it moves qi, and that can be a bit of a, of an, a pungent aspect to an herb. So what are its functions? ChineseNutrition.org is very clear, very small, clear. It says it tonifies yin, regulates qi, and calms the spirit. So that calming the spirit is sort of going to be our insomnia thing, our anxiety thing. That's a very common sort of approach to dealing with that. So that makes sense. I think calming the spirit is right there. It does help um, supposedly with, with menstruation and with menopause. So that's the yin aspect of it. That makes sense. And regulate chi is another one. It, it, it is also, we didn't say specifically depression, but often anxiety and depression are go hand in hand. And so some regulation of chi, which can cause, you know, if chi is stagnant, liver chi is stagnant, it can cause depression. In fact, uh, technically the, the Chinese for that is chi yu. And you means uh, depression is translated better as depression than stagnation, though it's often translated as stagnation. So depression. So that, that all makes a bit of sense with this hops. White Rabbit Institute says it clears heat, calms shen or spirit. Shen is just the, the Chinese word for spirit. R regulates liver chi, promotes urination, 
so it's diuretic. Softens stones, so that would be if you had gallstones or, or uh, kidney stones. Reduces inflammation and clears toxins. So that adds a lot more to this. I think the clear heat is, is a given, given that everyone agrees it's a cold herb. Um, we do think calms the spirit, regulates liberty. I think that's all good. Promotes urination. I don't have an issue with that. Um, that when we say promotes urination, what that also means in Chinese is it means drain stamp to a certain extent. And I think that is a possibility. The others I, I can see possible. I'd like to see, you know, where they get that from. However, having said all that from White Rabbit Institute, Holmes has a whole bunch of different functions to this. Calms the spirit. Okay, we're good with that. Tonifies the yin. We're good with that. Clears deficiency heat. So often when we tonify the yin, we clear deficiency heat. Deficiency heat in Chinese medicine means that there's heat being developed because of uh, too little yin to keep the body cool. So there's um, that's deficiency of yin causing heat because there's not enough yin to cool the body. So that's deficiency. So I think I can buy that. Circulates the chi, good. Relieves pain. I don't really see anything in any of its traditional uses that relieves pain. Clears internal wind. That's an interesting one. And actually uh, kind of indicates that it's an antispasmodic. Um, and that's the next, next thing they have is stop spasms. I'm not sure I see any of the traditional functions that would uh, would be con uh, congruous with that. Harmonizes menstruation. So again, we're getting into that menstruation. Promotes lactation. That's an interesting one. Um, we'll talk about that in just a minute as well because we're not sure it's safe for pregnancy and lactation. So an interesting one. Promotes urination. It includes the promotes urination. Clears damp heat, which makes sense. If it's cool and it's promoting urination, it's going to clear damp heat, according to Chinese medicine, and toxins. So I'm not sure about the toxin thing, um, but the rest of it, okay. I'm not sure about the internal wind and the spasms and the pain, but for the most part, I, I can buy most of this. So that's Chinese medicine and hops. So... Uh, let's go into some other herbs that can be compared with hops. So one of the big herbs for this is black whorehound or Balata fotida is similar in that it calms the spirit and circulates the chi and is used similarly to hops. It also has expectorant and antitussive effects and can be used for treating coughs, especially those that are spasmodic or have lung phlegm heat. So that's black whorehound. So um, similar to hops, but um, maybe a little bit more directed towards lungs than hops is. And when you look at the scientific literature, a lot of the studies um, combine uh, with valerian for the treatment of insomnia. So I had I was really hard-pressed to find any clinical studies that just looked at hops for insomnia. All of them were really mixtures of herbs, and, and the big mixture was valerian and, and hops. And I don't like reporting and saying, hey, then that shows that hops is good for insomnia because we know valerian is good for, for insomnia, and uh, I don't know how good hops alone is for insomnia when we look at a study like that. I want to see a specific study that just says hops. Um, for insomnia, and it really wasn't out there. The only one that was kind of out there was in in alcoholic men, and they and they reported better sleeping when taking hops. But I, it was small, it was super specific. I would not draw any major conclusions as to whether hops, uh, from a scientific point of view, aids in insomnia. So, anyways, that's valerian and insomnia and hops. All right, so let's get into some of these biomedical indications. Grunewald and his 
PDR Professional Desk Reference for Herbs, list the following functions of hops. It is neurosedative, so it sedates the neural system. That makes sense. If that would help anxiety, that would help um, the, uh, the uh, insomnia. So very good. Antibacterial, so good against bacteria. Antifungal, good against fungi. A diuretic, so that makes sense with that promotion, promote urination. That we say it does in Chinese medicine. Anti-tumor. There's some anti-tumor effects here, uh, which might be interesting. And here's the one that's really interesting. kind of explains a lot of the menstrual and menopausal stuff is it's estrogenic, which means it produces estrogen. So that's really interesting. And that may be one of the roles for this and one of the rationales for why it can help menopause and or menstruation. Now, they, they do list in this PDR evidence supporting each of these functions, though when looking at them, almost all the studies appear to be either animal or in vitro studies. So um, animal studies, you cannot say that it will have the same effects in humans. Uh, until there's a human clinical study, you cannot say that it will have that effect in humans. So animal studies are point you in a direction, but they do not prove anything at all. So I, I would not use those. In vitro studies are kind of even worse. In vitro means in glass. And this means this is in opposition to in vivo, which is in life. And so in vitro basically says we mixed the hops with certain aspects. So maybe a cell that does something or, or uh, you know, something along those lines. And therefore it has no actual, uh, it, again, it points to where this might work in a clinical or a human uh, a clinical situation in humans, but it in no way, shape, or form proves anything will happen in humans. So uh, even though there's lots of science showing these functions, so for example, with a, it's easy with an antibacterial. What they did was they'd have hops extract, they'd put it on a Petri dish that had a bunch of a particular type of bacteria and put a drop of, of the hop extra, extract and see if it killed the bacteria in the Petri dish. And lo and behold, it did. It's antibacterial, boom. But that doesn't mean that it does that in humans. And that's the that's the important part here. Uh, we do know that it's good. It, it's it's an important aspect. It's probably one of the reasons why it's used in beers to help preserve the beer and prevent it from, from being uh, inf infested with bacteria and or fungi. So it's a good thing. It just doesn't mean it has that same function in humans. Coder and, and Biende, which had a really good article on hops, suggested its use for sleeplessness Digestive complaints, menstrual complaints, diabetes, and obesity. That's an interesting addition here. As well as antibiotic, antiseptic, and uh, tuberculo tuberculocidal effects. So antibiotic is, you know, is against bacteria. Antiseptic means bacteria in the blood. So that's, that's good. Or just you know, clears uh, bacteria. And uh, tuberculocidal means that it actually works against tuberculosis. So that's an interesting effect of this that they recommend. So these are what they're suggesting or biomedical indications for this. Let's look at what the, the science actually shows. So the science, uh, there, are, there, do, there does appear to be quite a few animal and in vitro studies supporting these uses, which is interesting because often these uses are kind of out there and they're, they're just kind of traditional and there's no, not a lot of support. At least there's some support for this, even if it's not human clinical studies. And those clinical studies are nowhere near as prolific as those animal and in vitro studies. So I don't know. 
Um, there was a study on a HEPs, uh, on a hops extract standardized to the phytoestrogenic component. So phytoestrogens, um, phytoestrogenic means, uh, phyto means plant, and estrogen, of course, is uh, the chemical that is in the female reproductive um, uh, cycle. And so phytoestrogenic means that it has plant estrogens in it. So uh, there was a study on a hops extract standardized to the phytoestrogenic component which showed positive menopausal effects, especially for hot flushes. So that's an interesting one. Uh, that patient I was telling you about that was recommended with hops. Um, one of the reasons why she had insomnia was she had trouble falling asleep, but she was also getting a lot of hot flushes uh, throughout the night. And so that was, that was hurting her insomnia as well. So this might be a really good herb for her to try as that hops. Interesting. Uh, there were some clinical studies for other uses of hops, but looked at individual components rather than the whole herb or were, were mixtures with other herbs. So, uh, so individual components. So I don't like it. I don't look at when a study takes out a major component and then just uses that component of the herb and then test that in a clinical study. I don't find that useful for me to know if that herb is helpful or not. It says that component may or may not be useful, but it doesn't say the whole herb is. And when they do that, I think what they're actually doing is making that a pharmaceutical rather than an herbal preparation. And so I don't, I don't consider that evidence uh, to talk about on, on Spurb's herbs uh, because it's not necessarily reproducible. You can't go out and have the herb and expect just because this one extract of this one component may or may not have done something, I don't think that translates into the herb is helpful for that or not. It just can help with mechanism of action and maybe um, see if the whole herb can help. But I like whole herb studies rather than individual components of an herb study. And then as I mentioned earlier, when you have a mixture of herbs, you have no freaking clue what part of those is actually working or not working. In Chinese medicine, I'm not as concerned about that because we do a lot with formulas. And so actually our major form of prescription is in formulas. So if you want to do a whole formula, a traditional formula and see if it works or doesn't for a given condition, I think that's actually a valid approach in Chinese, you know, looking at Chinese medical herbs. But when you're looking at Western herbs that are generally designed to be used um, singly or maybe with a small combination, that's traditional. And those that traditional combination isn't as well established as it is in Chinese medicine. Um, it's a little bit difficult to, to determine the individual aspects and, and usefulness of the herbs. So in other words, I, I didn't include any of that stuff with, with this overview. As you know, I like systematic reviews. Systematic reviews look at a whole bunch of studies and kind of combines them and figures out um, a bigger clinical question. And so there was one systematic review that looked at hops uh, by Ulbricht and his team, or her team, his or her team. And uh, it was interesting. It looked at a whole bunch of things, and they concluded uh, on all of these. They have the exact same conclusion, which was what they called C-level. I'm sure they were using some scale, but I couldn't really in the literature figure out what scale it was. Um, but C-level meant limited human evidence. Uh, so it had limited, limited human evidence. In other words, there may have been some, but it wasn't very strong. And what it in in that it listed all these things that had that level C evidence, and that includes as an antioxidant for asthma, uh, to lower uh, cardiovascular risk for chronic venous insufficiency, as a deodorant 
I mean, that's an interesting one to assess. Uh, had limited human evidence to be used as a deodorant. Um, insomnia, uh, menopausal symptoms, metabolic syndrome, which is a syndrome that is sort of considered sort of pre-diabetic and pre-cardiovascular risk. Uh, and then rheumatic diseases, so that would be, you know, uh, your rheumatoid arthritis and other uh, sort of autoimmune diseases, and sedation. So all of those had that level C evidence or limited human evidence for its use. So interesting. So not, not strong in any of those things, not strong support for any of those things. WebMD concurs saying there's limited scientific evidence supporting its use for anxiety, sleep disorders, restlessness, tension, excitability, tension deficit, hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, nervousness, irritability, and symptoms of menopause. So there you go. Not a whole bunch of evidence outside of that animal and uh, in vitro evidence. There have been several small clinical studies looking at whether hops aid diabetes and obesity. So this is an interesting aspect, not traditional use. Uh, and these studies generally saw positive effects on these conditions, but were way too small to draw broad conclusions from. So that's interesting. This, if, if it could be useful for diabetes, for sugar control, and for obesity, uh, it, you know, I, I was just doing a lecture on, on some, uh, you know, weight loss drugs, and uh, that's the holy grail. You know, if we can figure out how to do that in an effective way, then there's a lot of money to be made there. So, um Good, interesting. So overall, the science I think doesn't support anything of its of its actual traditional uses. Um, you know, there's a lot more research that needs to happen, but that's typical on herbs. So you know, it's it's interesting. At least there's some evidence pointing to some of these traditional uses. All right, let's get into the contents of this. Hops has several components that may be pharmacologically useful. We talked about the alpha acids earlier and we talked about humulone, but there are others. There's cohumulone, there's adhumulone, and as we mentioned after boiling, there's isohumulone. These are responsible for the bitter taste of beer as we mentioned earlier. Humulone along with lupulone, um, one of the beta acids we're about to mention, have shown some antibiotic activity. So what I found interesting with this antibiotic activity was that it was very useful in some uh, some bugs, some bacteria, but not others. So it was, it was a little bit, um, you know, uh, sketchy. Well, you know, it was very useful for some, but not as useful for others. So interesting. There are beta acids, as we mentioned, and we mentioned lupulone, but there's also colupulone and adlupulone. And as we mentioned, these add aroma to beer. Uh, colupulone may help diabetes based on some mice studies. So again, not necessarily in humans. Uh, it's a pointer, but it does not show that it does that in humans. But it's interesting that we're starting to figure out which components can actually contribute to which aspects of what the herb does. Essential oils include myrcene, humulene, caryophylline, undecane 2-on and 2-methylbut-3-anol. These give hops its distinctive aroma. Didn't really see much in the way of contributing to any of the, the health or medicinal aspects of this herb. And then there's a bunch of uh, flavonoids as well, and these include xanthohumol, 8-prenylneringenin, uh, also uh, shortened to 8PG, that's an interesting one. Keep that in mind, that 8PG, that 8 prinylneringenin. Uh, pr uh, and then there's also isoxanthohumol. We talked about xanthohumol just a second ago. This is isoxanthohumol. Iso just means a different 
isomer of it. So it's the same chemical, but some of the chemical groups are kind of in a different formation. So xanthohumol may be helpful in treating obesity. So that's where that may come into play. Now that 8PG, that um, prenylnarenginine, that is an important one. And the reason why that's important in what we've been talking about is that is a phytoestrogen. That is what is thought to be the main chemical involved with the hops menopausal and, and, uh, and um, uh, menopausal and menstrual effects is that, that, that estrogen component of it. So that's very interesting. And there was lots of studies on 8PG, but again, I don't include those because it's just a singular chemical and that's a pharmaceutical that's not a herb uh several flavonoids there's more flavonoids than these these are just the major flavonoids and several were actually shown to um to maybe have anti-tumor effects and that might be where the anti-tumor effects come into play is in these flavonoids so there you go okay that is our contents let's talk about drug herb interactions with this herb so uh, according to Gruenwald, consuming hops with barbiturates may, so barbiturates are downers, that's sort of the common term for it, heavy downers, may increase the risk of central nervous system depression. And that makes sense. If this is a neurosedative, uh, then uh, combining it with a neuro, another strong neurosedative, probably not a good idea because of that risk. However, this is level D evidence because it's just an expert opinion. There's no evidence that it actually does that in humans. I think it's pretty good expert opinion. I wouldn't be combining them. Uh, there you go. And and WebMD agrees with this concern about barbiturates and adds benzodiazepines to this expert opinion. So benzodiazepines and barbiturates are um, anxiolytics and hypnotics. They, they fall into that class of drugs, uh, in, at least in my book, an anxiolytics, which means breaks down anxiety, and sedatives, which which help you, you know, that that you know, make you sleep, all that sort of stuff. And so um, barbiturates are much heavy, much heavier than the benzodiazepines in that. And though the benzodiazepines, I, for the barbiturates aren't used as often as they used to be. And generally benzodiazepines have supplanted their use for cases of insomnia and for, for anxiety in particular. So um, again, this is an expert opinion. So, um, but benzos, my point is, is barbiturates and benzos actually all work on the same GABA receptor. They just work in different aspects of that that GABA receptor in the brain and so it, it calms the brain and central nervous system so they they're, they're similar so I don't disagree with adding benzodiazepines into this expert opinion uh, and they also as a similar interaction they caution against the use of alcohol with hops given the potential for additive sleepiness remember alcohol is a central nervous system depressant as well so adding that all into this together is uh, makes a lot of sense even it's just expert opinion there's no evidence to support it Van Bremen performed a small study to see, and, and, his, and his or her team, to see if there were clinically relevant cytochrome P450 interactions. So remember, uh, when we talk about drug herb interactions, we look at, uh, see if there's any known interactions, which we just discussed, potential known interactions. And then we also look at some of the risk factors for a drug herb interaction. And, and generally we look at uh, if uh, uh, something's highly protein bound, if it has interactions with cytochrome P450, if a drug has a narrow therapeutic index, and if there's any P-glycoprotein interactions. So we look at those four aspects. This is one of those, that cytochrome P450, if there were any relevant 
um, Saccharomyces for 50 interactions. This is good. It was very small, so it's considered level C, but that's in humans. It's a step up from level D, which is pretty significant. And then included while there was some indication of minor induction of CYP3A4, which is the most common type of, of Saccharomyces for 50, there were no clinically significant interactions with Saccharomyces p 450 1A2, 2C9, 2D6, or 3A4. They said the, the interaction with 3A4 was, was relatively minor. So that's good. So this is basically saying there are no CYP interactions. That's good for potential drug-herb interactions. So there are some concerns with hops. So let's get into those. Grunewald and his team states that hops is contraindicated during pregnancy and in patients with depression. So this pregnancy thing kind of comes up. We will see, you know, it's contraindicated, it's not, it is um, sort of thing. But they're saying it is contraindicated with pregnancy. And in patients with depression, it makes sense if it causes central nervous system depression, you probably don't want to use it in a depressed, a depressed patient. They state there is controversy based on the phytoestrogenic content of hops with using it in patients with estrogen-dependent breast cancer. So it makes sense that we would be cautious with that, and I, and I don't think there would be an oncologist around that would say it's okay in this situation. So I, I think it's probably best to err on the side of, of caution on that though uh, there's no evidence that it would actually interfere with it. But let's, let's be cautious with it. Should be used with caution with central nervous system depressants. So that would be your benzos, diazepines, as we mentioned, the barbiturates, alcohol, or antipsychotics. So it, it adds antipsychotics into the mix here. Again, this is all Gruenwald. Uh, hops may induce an allergic reaction susceptible individuals, including an up to anaphylaxis, which is life-threatening allergic reaction. So that's part of the reason why I'm, I'm not a big fan of using this for skin conditions is because we, we tend to minimize, want to minimize allergens uh, when treating most skin conditions. Uh, and allergies can be significant. They, I, I read anywhere from like 5 to 10% of those who pick have pretty... Uh, have allergic reactions to hops. So definitely something to keep in mind in this allergy situation. Gardner and McGuffin, which um, came from the American Herbal Producers Association. It's actually a really good uh, text on, on some of the the interactions and toxicities of herbs. Uh, they agree with the concerns about allergic reactions to hops, so avoid the allergic reactions. They state there are no known concerns with pregnancy and lactation, but safety has not been conclusively established. So basically what they're saying is, um, we don't know. We really don't know if there's an issue with pregnancy and lactation. So uh, that's the, eh, it might be okay, might not. <laughs> Again, most people are going to err on the side of caution in that situation. Wong suggests caution when using with any estrogen-dependent conditions, including endometriosis, gynecomastia, as well as breast cancer. She also suggests one should stop taking hops two weeks before surgery as it may amplify the effects of anesthesia, and WebMD agrees with this, this caution as well. So there's some of the concerns we have there. Um, the estrogen-dependent conditions, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad they kind of expanded that a little bit and, and talked about some other conditions other than estrogen-dependent breast cancer, uh, and I think it's definitely something to be uh, consider in this situation. I'm not sure phytoestrogens translate to estrogens in the body. I think the evidence on that is is fairly low, but I think there it's a possibility. So definitely something to be uh, concerned about. We're not familiar. Endometriosis is a condition 
of endometrial tissues, um, being outside of the, the, the uterus and the uterus has an endometrial lining and that lining can actually go elsewhere. And so endometriosis is during menstruation, it, that tissue can actually bleed and cause lots of pain and discomfort. And it can actually be quite scarring and it can be quite a, a disconcerting condition. Gynecomastia is interesting. That is breast development in men. So if, uh, man has uh, breast uh, breasts uh, being developed and there's drugs and other conditions that can cause it some some hormonal conditions um, probably not uh, you know avoiding hops is probably not a bad idea Holmes suggests caution based on the actions of the herb when using it during pregnancy so again we have a few against pregnancy we have one that says eh, we don't really know probably best to err on the side of pregnancy you know uh, of safety on that hops are toxic to dogs according to Wikipedia. So keep it away from dogs. I think keeping herbs away from dogs are generally a good idea unless you know, you've know you done research and know that it's good for them. So there you go. There you have it. An herb not only great for beer, but possibly for many other conditions. Given its use in beer, I would dare say this is probably the most consumed herb in the world. I think, uh, I, I don't think I'm far-fetched in saying that. If not, you have to come up with something to kind of, maybe tea uh, might be another one. <laughs> Probably a little bit more lucha, which is the Chinese term for, for tea. That might be bigger than, than this herb. There we go. I, I corrected myself. Uh, well, it, but it's, they're both going to be super up there. While the scientific evidence is slim, it seems like this herb is pretty safe. It can possibly play a role in insomnia, anxiety, gastrointestinal disorders, maybe even diabetes and obesity, as well as menstrual and menopausal issues. Again, I, you know, as far as my herbs are, you know, as I have done this quite a bit at this point, I, I'm, I was a little shocked at how little evidence there was for this, for this herb. Um, I didn't get into it, but the uh, Commission E did have a monograph on this and did suggest a lot of this stuff. Uh, we've talked about Commission E in the past. This was uh, the European attempt at looking at herbs, uh, I think, in the 80s and 90s, and um, whether or not they actually played uh, a, a role in health. And so they said that it, it had a, a bit of a role. But again, I, I just, all the science was within animals and in and, and uh, in vitro, so I, I'm not sure about the scientific evidence. I'm, I'm, it's an interesting herb. I'll keep it in mind. I'm actually have a conversation with that one patient of mine and see uh, if she wanted to experiment with it a little bit, see if it helped. Uh, but in general, I'm a little bit on the fence on this herb. And that's it. Thank you very much. Uh, appreciate it. If you have any questions, uh, you can always get in touch with me at Dr. Greg at spurbsherbs.com or our website, www.spurbsherbs.com. That's S-P-E-R-B-S-H-E-R-B-S.com. And if you'd like to support us, uh, please, if you can go to that spurbsherbs.com and when you buy from Amazon, use the banner ad up at the top of our page and I'll get a few pennies from that. And that helps us continue to do this. Appreciate it. And thank you very much. And as usual, we have a long bibliography. There you go. That's our bibliography. That's included on spurbsherbs.com page for this as well. And again, thank you very much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Spurbs. Spurbs.
The proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Sperber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle. Janelle. Timothy, Timothy Dobbins. Dobbins. Roger Campbell. 